Hi, and welcome to the Essential Tennis Podcast, your place for free, expert tennis instruction that can truly help you improve your game. Hi, and welcome to episode number 297 of the Essential Tennis Podcast. Today, we're going to talk about tinkering in tennis, and in particular with strokes, trying new tips, tricks, and shortcuts, and kind of bouncing from one thing to another, which is super, super common among tennis players. Highly recommend you listen through this, even if you don't think you have a problem uh, with this. It's something that a lot of players have this pattern, and they probably don't even realize it. Before we get to that, two pieces of housekeeping really quickly. First of all, the podcast is now available on Spotify. If you don't know what Spotify is and you don't use it, then just completely disregard this. If you use Spotify for music, like I do, then maybe you'll be surprised to know that you can also use Spotify for podcasts. And the Essential Tennis Podcast was just recently uh, added to Spotify. So you can stream the podcast from your Spotify app. thought you'd like to know that if, if you're currently using Spotify already. Uh, today's question comes to us from Chuck, who is in our brand new Facebook group, which is the, the second quick thing I have today. We just started this Facebook group, I, I think just last week, uh, late last week. And so if you're a member of the community, if you're a listener of the podcast, then this is the perfect place for you. If you happen to be on Facebook already, then it really is perfect. It's, this is something we've been cultivating within our paid students for quite some time. But for the first time now, we're also creating a group just for our general audience. And it's already turning into a fantastic resource and source of inspiration and guidance and instruction for players all over the world. So highly recommend you jump in. This morning, I was looking for something to talk about, and I just left a quick post and said, hey, how can I help you? And so that's where today's question comes from. So if you'd like to join that group, you can. I've got a, a redirect set up for it. Just go to essentialtennis.com slash group. That's essentialtennis.com slash group, and it'll shoot you out right to the, the Facebook group, and you can request to join, and we'd love to have you a part of that community. Okay, so Chuck wrote earlier today and said, I've been playing tennis since I was eight years old, and at 56, I'm still tinkering with my strokes, whether it be my grip, my take back, stance, etc. And I often think, that if I would just stick with something, I might be better off. But I also want to constantly improve and think these small changes might be the key. So could your topic be about tinkering with things? Is that good or bad? Okay, Chuck, awesome question. Love your vulnerability here, your willingness to, uh, to talk about this and describe yourself as kind of bouncing from thing to thing. I think you know some of this might be semantics and it kind of depends on the definition of the word tinkering. How I, I think really at the crux of the matter, Chuck, is how long are you sticking with each thing? And we're going to get into some really specific kind of definitions of that. And let's go ahead and jump right into it. And I'm actually going to be reading two quick paragraphs from what has been my favorite book recently on the improvement process and when I read this book, it just, it was like the heavens opened and it just articulated perfectly so many things that I've been pursuing and trying to explain. And it's just a wonderful book. It's called Mastery by George Leonard. That's Mastery by George Leonard. I'm not affiliated at all with the book. 
the author unfortunately passed away a number of years ago. Otherwise, I w- would have absolutely loved to have him on the podcast. But I there's four different personalities that George talks about in his book. And the first I'm going to talk about is kind of the archetype, the uh, kind of what he puts on a pedestal as far as the approach, the, the mentality, the attitude that you should have as you try to master something that's really technically complex and nuanced and layered like tennis is. And so he describes the mastery curve. If you can just kind of picture in your mind, it's really, really simple visual, which is kind of a, a line graph moving from left to right. And there's a straight line moving from left to right. And then there's a little a little bump, like a little hump, like going up and then curving back down again a little bit and then plateauing again, but a little bit higher than the plateau before. And then plateau, plateau, plateau. And then there's another little bump, a little bump up. And what this is really representing is is execution, quality, uh, the level of mastery in anything complex like tennis. And he actually uses tennis as an example in several parts of the book. And so if you can just kind of picture in your mind's eye that kind of straight line, straight line, straight line, a little bit of a bump, and then another straight line, a little bit higher than the previous straight line, a little bit of a bump, and then another straight line, a little bit higher than the previous straight line, so on and so forth. And so here's the first curve, I'm sorry, the first paragraph below that curve, that little image of what he calls the mastery curve. He, uh, George writes and says, there's really no way around it. Learning any new skill involves relatively brief spurts of progress, each of which is followed by a slight decline to a plateau somewhat higher in most cases than which preceded it. The curve above is ne- is necessarily idealized. In the actual learning experience, progress is is less regular. The upward spurts vary, the plateaus have their own dips and rises along the way, but the general progression is almost always the same. To take the master's journey, you have to practice diligently, striving to hone your skills to attain new levels of competence. But while doing so, you also have to be willing to spend most of your time on a plateau to keep practicing even when you seem to be getting nowhere." And then he goes on to, I mean, there's the whole book is just is just talking about you know this basic premise of what it looks like to get better. What does it look like to pursue mastery in any kind of discipline like tennis? And so the mastery curve is a cycle of choosing something to work on, a particular part of your game. And you, we could apply this in a macro sense to your game at large, which is made up of many, many, many different individual elements, and we could apply the mastery curve concept to a more micro part of your game as well, like your your forehand, and maybe you want to tinker and practice something on your forehand. But it's a, it's a process of choosing something to work on, leaving your comfort zone, mastering it, having it finally kind of click to where it's subconscious, and then moving on to something new. And as that happens, there's kind of this there's this period of like striving and pushing and trying and, and there's this period of effort where you don't really seem to be getting anywhere. And then there's this this kind of breakthrough moment. It's like, oh, sweet, I got it. And then most of the time, there's kind of a little bit of a settling after that that jump in execution. And then you're on a new plateau and then you kind of push and strive and and work again. And th- then there's another you know bump. And as, as George just 
outlined in that quick paragraph I read. It's not always exactly the same amount of time, and it's not a smooth curve. And so there's different variables at play, but that's kind of the gist and what we should expect when trying to, to master something. Now, there's, there's kind of three other archetypes, three other personalities. And this is where we get into the tinkerer. And Chuck, this is where you need to, to pay attention. One of those other personalities, uh, one of them is called the dabbler, what is called the obsessive, and the third is called the hacker. And the dabbler, the way the, the dabbler, the way he visually represents it, is a straight line followed by that, that same kind of shape and size of hump or kind of bump up and to the right. And then a, a short period of plateau and then just a, a squiggly downward line. <laughs> and so there's kind of this uh, plateau, a bump in execution, and then just fall off a cliff and just kind of tank. And so let me really quickly uh, read for you George Leonard's description of the dabbler. And Chuck and everybody else listening, a- as you listen to this, consi- what George Leonard is describing here is much more in a macro sense. Chuck, what I'd like you to consider is applying what you're about to hear and the concept of the dabbler to a more micro context of, let's say, an individual stroke mechanic. Like maybe you know that you're supposed to hit with a continental grip on your serve. You're used to a more forehand grip. And so you're going to try to change from a forehand grip to a continental grip. Okay, so here's George Leonard's description of the dabbler. The dabbler approaches each new sport, and so kind of think with me here, think about each new stroke or each new tip, career, opportunity, or relationship with enormous enthusiasm. He or she loves the rituals involved in getting started, the spiffy equipment, the lingo, the shine of newness. When he makes his, his first spurt of progress in a new sport, for example, example, the dabbler is overjoyed. He demonstrates his form to family, friends, and people he meets on the streets. He can't wait for the next lesson. The fall off from his peak comes as a shock. The plateau that follows is unacceptable, if not incomprehensible. His enthusiasm quickly, quickly wanes. He starts missing lessons, and his mind fills up with rationalizations. This really isn't the right sport for him. It's too competitive, non-competitive, aggressive, non-aggressive, boring, dangerous, whatever. He tells everyone that it just doesn't fulfill his unique needs. Starting another sport gives the dabbler a chance to replay the scenario of starting up. Maybe he'll make it up to the second plateau this time. Maybe not. Then it's on to something else. So, uh, Chuck, if, if you are listening and kind of applying this to, to what you described, and just really quickly going over Chuck's description of himself, he says, I'm still tinkering with my strokes, whether it be my grip, my take back, my stance, and I often think that if I would just stick with something, I might be better off, but I also want to constantly improve and think these small changes might be the key. So could your topic be about tinkering with things, good or bad? So Chuck, for, for me, I think that we could come up with a little bit more micro-focused personality archetype or kind of stereotype, which is the tinkerer. And this is somebody who is committed to tennis. It's not that they're jumping from tennis to golf to pickleball to shuffleboard or whatever, but the tinkerer, I think we could define as somebody who is sticking with a single sport, but they love trying new tips, new tricks, new drills, new... Uh, kind of shortcuts to trying to get the result that they want. And they'll try a lot of different things, and maybe there's slight improvements here and there, 
but nothing ever actually sticks and becomes a long-term unconscious habit. And this leads me back to a familiar place for many of you if you've been listening to the podcast for a long period of time. This is probably the, the most repeated concept, so I'll move through it relatively quickly on the podcast, which is the four phases of learning. And the four phases are, Chuck, if you're not familiar, phase number one, unconsciously incompetent. It means that you don't, you don't know what you don't know, you don't really have any information about the forehand swing, and you're not good at it either. Phase number two, after you acquire some information or you take a lesson or you watch a video online, is consciously incompetent. So now you have some information in your head, and maybe it's actually really good information, maybe it's great knowledge, but you still don't know how to apply it in real life. And so the skill is still incompetent. You haven't mastered the skill yet. Phase three is consciously competent. You have the knowledge in your head, you have the awareness and the information, and now you've practiced enough times that you can, you can actually execute it correctly. And so you could, you could say you're kind of on your way to mastering the skill, but you, you have to be aware of what you're doing. You have to be moving slow enough that you can keep tabs on everything that you're doing, how your body's moving, how you're swinging the racket, and then you can do it. But if you're put in a competitive environment or you're put under stress, then you go right back to your old habit. It's not unconsciously competent yet. And that is the fourth and final phase when you do the new thing automatically without having to think about it. And so, Chuck, I the, the thing that I would be wary of you falling into, the trap that I would really caution you, and I don't I don't know for sure. You know, you didn't you didn't quite give me enough information and I haven't watched your progress and your progression over the years. So I, I, I can't say this for sure. But based on your description, the thing that I would strongly, strongly caution you on is bailing out before you get to that fourth phase of learning. If you bail out at consciously competent and you're like, oh, sweet, now I can, you know, you're hitting with the ball machine, you're hitting with the pro, you're in team practice, you're hitting with a partner, it's cooperative rally. It's like, oh, sweet, I got the new forehand. And then you move on to the next thing before it becomes unconsciously competent. Or even worse, you bail out at phase two, consciously incompetent. <laughs> and a lot of players are in this crazy cycle of they watch a video, they're like, oh, sweet, I get it. They, under, they, they click, it's like they're smart. Like they've been around the game for a long period of time. And so they can connect the dots and they, under, they understand, they grasp the concept immediately. And they'll go out and hit a couple of balls that's like, oh, sweet, like I think I got it. But there's no mastery at all. They don't actually ever become competent. And a big reason why this happens, and many of you listening are in a cycle of uh, learning something new, trying it a few times, and you feel like you got it, but it's, you're not even doing it, not even close. And the reason why is you've never done video. And so there's this smoke screen of you, th- you think you're doing something that you're actually not. And if you're not using video, you just do not know for sure. You know, I'm go- going right back to the digital video. If you, if you don't see yourself trying to execute, there's no way of knowing, there's no way of confirming third party, I don't care. I don't care if your coach tells you, oh, looks great. You need to see for yourself what the heck your body is doing. Your coach can be fooled. Even if even if he or she is unbelievably qualified, unbelievably experienced, 
I, I'm telling you that because I am fooled on a regular basis. My eyes see something and the camera shows me something else. And so if your coach is not using video or you are not using video, it very well could be that you are bouncing back and forth between phase one and phase two of learning all kinds of different things and you're not actually learning or, or cementing any of them into your game could be you're not even becoming consciously competent. You're not even moving to phase three, much less phase four. And the jump from phase three to phase four is a significant one because it requires doing thing, doing the new thing at phase three enough times correctly that you actually create a new subconscious habit. And for different people, that's different amounts of, of reps. Could be a couple hundred, could be a couple thousand, it could be tens of thousands doing it right. I, I, I'm not saying tens of thousands of forehands, tens of thousands of the right forehand doing it the new way before your subconscious finally grabs onto it and you no longer have to think about it. And the only way to really know if that's happening or not is to use video. Just, just please trust me on that. So, most tennis players are either a tinkerer or a hacker. And uh, the, the hacker uh, curve here in Mastery Book, let me flip to it uh, really quickly. Um, the hacker the hacker is moving to the right, has that first plateau, and then a little bump up, and then another little plateau, and then another little bump up, and then an eternal flat line out to the right. <laughs> no more bumps up. No more bumps down. It's just floating, coasting along on an eternal plateau, never challenging himself or herself again, never pushing the envelope, never leaving their comfort zone. Also, never you know falling off either. It's just kind of riding on easy street, using what, they, what they're comfortable with, what they know that they know, and never leaving that comfortable kind of just getting by. And, and that's pr probably not you. If you're listening to my voice right now, it's very, very unlikely that you're a hacker. There's no way you would have made it 20 minutes in or however long we are into this episode if you didn't really take improvement seriously. So if you're listening to me, you're probably not a hacker. But the I would venture to say the biggest chunk of tennis players are hackers. And I don't, I don't mean that, I, I mean that as per the definition of, of George Leonard. I don't mean that in a derogatory way or in a judgmental way. I just mean based on the, the curves that George Leonard drew here, this is what most tennis players are, are in. It's just in that rut, that plateau, and they're totally fine with it, and that's, that's fine. I'm happy for the hackers that are completely content. Like, that's great. They're enjoying the sport. They're getting what they want out, what they want out of it. That's, that's awesome. I'm super happy for them. The people that I really feel for are the dabblers or the tinkerers, the people that are on a micro level trying tip after tip. They're watching video after video. They're, they're just on this merry-go-round of trying thing after thing after thing. And Maybe thinking they've got it or knowing that they don't have it, but they just continue to, to strive and push and work, but nothing is sticking. So, Chuck, at least you're trying new things. And those of you out there who, who really relate to the hacker or to the tinkerer kind of curve concept, I have to commend you. At least you're trying new things. You're putting yourself out there. You're trying new stuff. You're, you're making an attempt, and that's great. Now, the key to long-term development and level improvements that build on one another instead of just 
lightly grasping a new concept and then reverting and then going to something else and lightly grasping that concept and reverting and then going to something else. The difference is sticking with those things long enough to form new subconscious habits. Without that, you'll be on a never-ending merry-go-round of tips, tricks, and shortcuts, none of which actually stick. And that means there will be no fundamental improvement. Now, you, if you're enjoying that process, then by all means, again, continue. If you're enjoying the process of trying something new and you, you love the, that fresh you know, feeling of, oh, this is, is going to be it. Like, this is going to be the, break for, the breakthrough. And you try it for a while and it, it kinda, the shine kind of wears off a little bit. And you're like, oh, okay, maybe, maybe it wasn't quite as great as I thought it would be. And then you just, you end up just kind of back where you started. And then you're like, oh, oh, here's something new. And it, it really makes sense. And at first it seems like you're getting great results. And then the shine kind of wears off again. And then you go to the next thing. Listen, if you're enjoying that, then by all means, continue. If this is resonating with you, however, and you identify with this and you're ready to get off of that cycle, it's all about hanging out, embracing the plateau sticking with that thing, it might feel monotonous. It might feel like you're banging your head against the wall. It might feel like, ah, am I ever going to get to the end of this? But when it does happen, there's no more satisfying feeling than that. I know because I'm working with students remotely and in person all the time that make these breakthroughs. And it's just the most gratifying thing for them. And it's the most gratifying thing for me as a teacher. So Chuck, I can't give you a specific timeline. It, it varies person to person. It depends on your athletic abilities. It depends on the quality of the reps you put in, how well you're really aware of what you're doing and the quality, how much are you reverting versus how much are you actually doing the new thing right? And what's, what is the quantity of those quality reps? I don't know those three variables for you. So I, I can't tell you how long each new thing is going to take. And every new skill, there's, there's a little bit of a different nuance and, and flavor there as well, even for the same player with the same number of reps and the same quality of reps and the same inherent athletic abilities. A different skill is going to take a different amount of time. We see it every time we work as a VIP student. And so my biggest piece of advice to you, Chuck, and everybody else listening, is to embrace the process. Learn to love that process. Learn to love that struggle of trying to really grab onto that new thing and don't let go until you have verified over and over again with video that it's a new habit. You don't have to think about it anymore. And that takes time and it takes effort. But if you love the game and you love to improve, and you learn to enjoy that process, then there's nothing better than making that breakthrough. Hope this is helpful, Chuck. If you're listening, it was helpful to you. Do me a favor and share this episode with a, a friend or a teammate or a, a hitting partner or maybe your coach. I would appreciate that very much. And if you have any questions you'd like me to answer, feel free to shoot me an email to Ian, that's I-A-N, at essentialtennis.com. For more free game-improving instruction, be sure to check out EssentialTennis.com, where you'll find hundreds of video, audio, and written lessons. Also, be sure to subscribe to Essential Tennis on iTunes and YouTube, where we are the number one resource in the world, providing passionate instruction for passionate tennis players. Thank you so much for listening today. Take care, 
and good luck with your tennis.